Good morning and welcome to Theological Equipping Class. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. Let me open us in a word of prayer and then we will get into the topic that we are studying today. Almighty God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your word and that you would help us apply them to uh, contextual issues going on in our society. We ask that you'd bless this time and we thank you for it. It's in Christ's name, amen. Well, our topic today is the restriction of a Christian sexual ethic. Now, this might seem to be a strange topic when it comes to a series on defending the faith. If you look through an apologetics textbook or something like that, there's probably not going to be a section on, uh, you know, Christians and sexuality or something like that. The reason that we are bringing this up is because one of the most common charges brought against Christianity today is that it must be false or it must be unloving because it is overly restrictive in the areas of sexuality and gender. Okay, So, you know, 300 years ago, if you wanted to refute Christianity, you might attack it on some sort of philosophical grounds. It's increasingly becoming common that Christianity gets attacked for its views, which are seen as intolerant, when it comes to uh, homosexuality or it comes to uh, transgenderism or whatever it might be. So the reason that we're addressing this today in our Defending the Faith kind of apologetic series is because one of the most common charges brought against Christianity today is that it must be false and or unloving. You'll hear that language a lot, that it's unloving, because it's overly restrictive in the areas of sexuality and gender. So before we can get into the critique that's brought against Christianity, we first need to go over just a quick summary of a biblical view of sex and a biblical view of gender. So let's start with a quick summary of the biblical view of sexuality. It's very, very simple. Here's what it is. Within a monogamous heterosexual marriage, or what's commonly been called for most of world history, marriage, right? I'm just going to use the term marriage. Every time I say that, I mean monogamous and heterosexual, okay? That within a monogamous and heterosexual marriage, that uh, that sex is not sin. In fact, that sex is God glorifying. It is God's gift to a husband and his wife, okay? Is God's gift to, uh, to a husband and his wife. But anything outside of that, the Bible calls porneia. Okay, porneia is the Greek phrase that's used. Porneia simply means sexual immorality. Porneia is like an umbrella term. And anything outside of that marriage that goes under that is considered sexual immorality. It's where we get the word pornography. Okay, pornography is a graphe, a picture of porneia, sexual immorality. Uh, a prostitute in the Corinthian world, back in the, in the Greek world, was called a porne. Okay, so these, uh, these terms are all related to each other. Porneia is a broad general term for any sexual activity outside of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. Okay, so let me give you Parkway's official statement in our statement of faith on marriage and sexuality. It's very good. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman, as defined by creation and biblical revelation. Such union involves a lifelong covenant for the purpose of intimate companionship, sexual expression, joy, and procreation of the human race. The marriage relationship mirrors the relationship between Christ and his church, and thus any perversion of that picture obscures the glory of God displayed in the gospel. This meaning of marriage and sexuality is thus incompatible with homosexuality, transgenderism, polygamy, gender fluidity, adultery, fornication, pornography, or any other distortion of the consistent teaching of Scripture as affirmed by the unanimous and long-standing tradition of the church, meaning of the Christian church, Catholic, Greek, Orthodox, and Protestant, okay? For more information on this, please listen to our lectures on marriage and sexuality online. So that's a quick summary of a biblical view of sexuality. Within marriage, good. Outside of marriage, bad. It's very simple. It's almost like a fire in that sense. A fire in a fireplace is a great context for a fire. It provides light, it provides heat, it provides warmth. But if it gets outside of the fireplace and burns everything down, that's not good, okay? That's not good. Now, let's give a quick summary of the biblical view of sex and gender. Now, for the purposes of this lecture, I will sometimes use the term sex and I will use the term gender interchangeably, okay? Now, when it comes to the whole transgenderism debate, you need to know that there is a distinction between these terms, and I'm aware of that distinction. I don't always have to use it, but I want you to know that I'm aware of it. Typically, sex refers to one's biological birth sex, Whereas gender refers to a cultural or societal expectation of how a man or how a woman is supposed to be, look, act, whatever it might be. So sex typically relates to your birth gender your, your, or your birth. See, I even use the term gender there interchangeably. Uh, what you are when you are born, male or female. Whereas gender has a uh, reference typically to kind of these cultural understandings of male and female. So let me give you a quick summary of the biblical view of sex and gender. God created humanity 
into two distinct biological sexes. Now listen to what I'm about to say because this definition is very important. One's biological sex is not determined by societal opinion, internal feeling, personal identification, or cultural understanding, but rather by the way one's body is arranged from before birth for the purposes of reproduction. I'm going to read that again because that's long, but it's important. Basically, here's what it's saying. What determines whether you are a man or a woman is how your body is predisposed for the purposes of eventual reproduction. That's why there can only be two genders. That's why there only can be two sexes, two biological sexes. Let me read it again. One's biological sex is not determined by societal opinion, internal feeling, personal identification, or cultural understanding, but rather by the way one's body is arranged from before birth for the purposes of eventual reproduction. One can mutilate the body, but one's sex cannot ever be changed. You get to never change your sex, period. You can mutilate your body. You can chop things off. You can have surgeries. You can do all that. That does not change whether or not you're actually a man or a woman, okay? To push it even further, you will always be your original biological sex even after the resurrection, okay? Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're raised to life or raised to judgment, you'll be raised either as a man or a woman, whatever your biological sex was, okay? Notice that when Jesus is resurrected, he's not resurrected as like a Chinese woman or something like that. He's resurrected as a Jewish male because that's what he is, right? In his humanity. And so, uh, and so you need to know that. Additionally, men and women are to act in accordance with certain biblical social differences, what's commonly called gender, concerning things such as roles in the home and in the church, how they look and dress, how they act, etc. The psychological diagnosis of gender dysphoria, which is when someone feels like they are a different gender than they really are, is a result of the fall. So there's an actual psychological diagnosis for a man that feels like they're really a woman or feels more comfortable as a woman, or for a woman who feels like they're really a man or feels more comfortable as a man, and that is what is known as gender dysphoria, okay? It is a psychological diagnosis, and it's a result of the fall. The reason that, we, that, that sometimes people don't feel like they are the biological sex they really are is a result of the fall. We don't think clearly now. Our, everything is messed up and broken because sin has entered the world and so we don't view truth and these kind of things like we should, okay? For more information on this, please listen to Tim's lecture on transgenderism online. And then number three, additionally, men and women are equal in value, essence, and dignity, that truth withstanding. Men alone are called to the highest roles of leadership, both in the home and in the church, okay? It is the husband who is to lead his family. It is uh, the restriction, the uh, uh, function of an elder, of teaching over men, of exercising authority over men, of being an elder, these kind of things, is reserved for men. For more information on this, listen to Jeff's lecture on complementarianism online, okay? So there's all the homework. There's all laying the foundation of, uh, you know, biblical sexuality and gender and these kind of things. So let's just do a recap, and then we'll really get into the lesson, okay? Anything outside of a monogamous heterosexual marriage that is sexual is sin, okay? When it comes to your biological sex, your biological sex is determined by the way that your body is prearranged for the purposes of eventual reproduction, okay? Whether you're sterile or not is irrelevant to that definition. You only have one of two options uh, when it comes to that. Okay. Additionally, God has assigned certain things, certain roles to men and certain roles to women, but more specifically, even in the home, to a husband and to a wife. Okay, that's the recap. Now, let's get into the real fun stuff. Okay, let's get into current objections to Christianity based on our quote-unquote restrictive or primitive or bigoted views of sexuality and gender. Okay? So what I want to do for the rest of this lesson is I want to bring up cultural objections to Christianity on these topics. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through some lies that culture will give us. Notice that these sentences are not true. They're lies, and then I want to refute them, okay? Before we get into this section, though, I need to say something pastoral. If you are somebody here at Parkway, or you are somebody listening online, or whatever it might be, and you struggle with either same-sex attraction or with gender dysphoria, you need to know that there is grace for you. As long as you are willing to trust in Christ, as long as you are willing to fight your sin, as long as you're willing not to give in to uh, in an unrepentant way, whatever this sin is, you don't need to think that there's something, you know, I think we have a tendency to sometimes think that uh, somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria is like extra weird, something like that. That's not true. We're all broken because of sin. And the fact that you want to be of a different gender is because you've been influenced by sin. 
Or the fact that you are attracted to somebody who is uh, of the same sex as you, that is because of the brokenness of mankind. So just because you struggle with those things, you are, you are welcome to not act on them. You are welcome to know that Christ loves you and walks with you and the church is called to walk alongside uh, with you uh, as you struggle with these things. But what you can't do is you can't give in to them. Sometimes I get asked, okay, Zach, can somebody who is living in a homosexual lifestyle come to Parkway? And I just say, well, it depends on what you mean. If you mean that they're coming to Parkway just to hear the gospel, sure, any lost person can come to Parkway. If you're saying, can they become a member while they continue walking in their sin? No, but that's not because they're gay. That's because you're not allowed to ever be a Christian and walk in unrepentant sin. If a guy's living with his girlfriend, we would say you can't be a member here because you obviously don't love Jesus because you're not repenting of your sin. So if you struggle with some of these things, you need to realize just because you're drawn towards something that's evil, that doesn't mean that you cannot fight it and find forgiveness and mercy and love in Christ. We're all tempted towards evil things whether it's adultery, whether it's fornication, whether it's greed. And what we have to do always is say, that's not who I am, right? My desires are not my identity. My identity is who Christ says my identity is, which is somebody who's forgiven and loved and accepted by faith in him. Well, let's get into the following list of cultural lies about sexuality and gender, followed by a refutation of those lies. Lie number one, this is a very common one, especially this is 2020, this is a very common one that one can change their sex or their gender. That one can change their sex or their gender. This position is logically incoherent. Let me explain why. When somebody says that they want to transition to become a woman, so let's say you have a man, someone who's born as a man, and they want to transition to become a woman. Before you can do that, you have to define what a woman is. So if a man says, I feel like a woman, my first question is, what is a woman? Because if you feel like it, you need to have a solid definition of what that is. But if they define a woman as something subjective, like a feeling, then the word woman has lost all meaning. If they define a woman objectively, then they must agree that there is a set definition of what a woman is and what a woman is not. What exactly is that universal definition? As soon as you see somebody tweet out, transgender women are women, the first question you have should be, what on earth do you mean by woman? What do you mean by women? Before a man can say he feels like a woman or he is a woman, we have to define objectively what that is. What is a woman? And as soon as you step into defining gender roles or genders or sexes objectively, well, now you've lost any sort of debate if you're on the transgenderism movement side because the whole movement doesn't want to give a strict definition because that would exclude some people who think that they are transgender. Next, the claims of science have to be empirically proven, now listen to this next part, and have to be falsifiable. This goes back to a philosopher named Karl Popper. To do real science, you have to have a way of falsifying it. You have to have a way of showing that it's not true if it's not true, okay? That's part of science. There has to be a way to tell some people who think that they're transgender that they objectively are, and other people who think that they are transgender that they objectively are not but the movement has no scientific objective standard to separate out who really is and who really is not transgender. So if you're a doctor and someone comes in and says, I think I have the flu, how do you know? You do a test and either they have the flu or they don't, okay? It's very, very clear. If someone were to come in and say, I think that I'm not just a man pretending to be a woman, but I'm actually transgender, what standard do you use to know whether somebody truly is transgender or they're not? The movement has no standard of that. Next, basing transgenderism on an internal feeling is certainly not scientific. So as soon as somebody says, well, I know objectively and scientifically and with my body I'm a man, but really I feel like I'm a woman, what are you appealing to? You're not doing science at that point. You're, you're appealing to something that can't be probed into through science. It can't be looked into with science. Are you appealing to a soul? Because then now we got to get into religion if you're going to appeal to a soul. <clears throat> so uh, basing transgenderism on an internal feeling is certainly not scientific. Next, if sex slash gender is not based on your physical body, okay, listen to this, then why change your body at all? What happens when somebody believes that they are actually of the opposite, that they are actually the opposite sex, is a lot of times they'll do a sex change operation or whatever it might be. My question is why if it's not based on the body? If sex and gender is not based on your body, your physical body, then why change your physical body once you've decided to transition? Conversely, if sex and gender is based upon your physical body, then your body would give you an indicator 
of your true sex slash gender. Not even to mention that why try to look more like your preferred gender if you think that gender stereotypes are bad, right? So on the one hand, those who are more on the left would say gender stereotypes are bad. Don't put all men into this category and all women to this category. But on the other hand, a man who wants to transition to become a woman looks very much like the stereotype of the woman. The big hair and the, a lot of makeup and the dresses and all whatever it is. Why would you play into both narratives at the same time when they contradict? Another thing to refute the lie that one can change their gender is this question. In the case of identical twins, why sometimes does one claim to be transgender and the other does not when they come from the same genetic makeup? Now that's interesting. If you're trying to say, well, this person is really this other gender and we know it for sure and it's science. Well, what about when they have an identical twin and that twin not at all, doesn't at all feel like they're opposite sex? What do you do with that? Why can a person identify as another gender but not another race or age? Okay? See, the Christian position is that your, your, your biological sex is what you're born as and that doesn't change. The Christian position is also you can't change your race. The Christian position is also you can't change your age. The Christian is consistent. The transgenderism movement is not because they say that you can identify as another gender, but you cannot identify as another race or another age, right? That's the case with whole, what's her name, uh, Rachel Dolezal or whatever. She's a woman who uh, pretends to be African-American and people say, you don't get to do that. And she says, but this is how I feel. And they say, well, your feelings don't determine it. But then if you turn that around on transgenderism, they just kind of flop. They just kind of punt. They don't realize that they're being inconsistent. Let me be extremely clear. A black woman and a white woman are more similar physiologically than is a white woman and a white man. Or to, 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 to use age, I'm, I'm 33, right? When I am 40, I am much more like 33-year-old Zach than if I was a woman. And so it's just inconsistent to say one can change their, uh, <clears throat> their gender but not their age or their race. The views of transgenderism is a contradiction to what is called gender fluidity and to those who don't identify as any gender at all. So on the one hand in this movement, you have people that would say, I'm not a man, I'm really a woman. But then you also have people that say, there is no man and there is no woman. We're just gender fluid. There's just a spectrum. You can be pan, you can be all, you can be zer or z or something like that. You, you cannot identify. Well, those two things are intention. The transgender person wants, the transgender person wants to say, if they're born a biological male, but they want to be female, I'm actually a woman. But they have other people in their very own movement saying there's no such thing as binary sex. There's no such thing as male and female. There's contradictions even within their own movement. This next part I think is interesting. <clears throat> if you were born a man, how would you know what it really felt like to be a woman? So when a man says, deep down, I'm really a woman, how would he know that? If he wasn't a woman... How would he know what that's supposed to feel like? You could only feel like a, quote, man feeling like what you think a woman would feel like. Let me say that again. You could only feel like a man feeling like what you think a woman feels like, but you could not actually feel like a woman. This kind of sounds like a Shania Twain song for some reason, okay? Here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> There's a very famous article by a philosopher named Thomas Nagel, and uh, the name of his article is, What is it like to be a bat? And by that he means the animal, not the wooden stick you use to hit baseballs. And the point of his article is this. If you right now imagine what it's like to be a bat, you actually have no idea what it's like to be a bat. What you're imagining is you as a human inside of a bat body and what you think it would be like. But you have no way of actually knowing what it's like to be a bat because you've never been a bat. You've only been a human. So when you think of being a bat, you're only thinking of a human that's a bat, not an actual bat. Well, Nagel's position is true when it comes to transgenderism. A man who says that he feels like he's really a woman is really just a man feeling like what he thinks a woman feels like. He, he's kind of imagining himself in a woman's body, kind of like we imagine ourselves in a bat, but that doesn't mean you're an actual woman. You don't know actually what a woman feels like. To do that, you would have had to been born, wait for it, a woman, okay? And so this is important to keep in mind. Let's go to lie number two. Lie number two, one cannot change their sexual orientation. Okay, this is a common lie that's used in, uh, uh, you know, in the uh, kind of homosexual community, in the homosexual movement, that one cannot change their sexual orientation. Okay? A few comments on that. That's the lie. Now let's refute that lie with some truth. First of all, you need to understand that this claim conflicts with transgenderism. Okay? The T in LGBTQ 
does not agree with the other letters. There's kind of an alphabet war going on, okay? And the T, the transgenderism, does not agree with the other ones. Let me explain why. Let's say that there are two men that are in a same-sex relationship, okay? Let's call them A and B. I just won't even give them an I'll just say A is one man and B is another man, and they are in a same-sex relationship, okay? They are a homosexual couple in a same-sex relationship. One of the claims of the homosexual movement is that you cannot change your sexual orientation. If you're attracted to men, you cannot be attracted to women, okay? Let's say that A decides that he's actually transgender, that he's going to be a transgender woman, that he actually is a woman. You either have to say that B is now attracted to a woman and thus ceases to be gay. Notice that he has changed his orientation. There were two men who were together. One of them now claims to be a woman, looks exactly the same, right? Claims to be a woman. Either B is no longer gay and he's changed his orientation or A isn't really a woman. The transgenderism is false. They can't both be true at the same time. You can't hold that one can change their their gender, but they cannot change their sexual orientation because as soon as you start mixing those up, they break down, okay? They break down. As we continue refuting lie number two, that one cannot change their sexual orientation, let me mention a few other things. This claim is just not true. There are people who have literally changed their sexual preference and even changed it back over time. So if you say, well, Zach, they didn't change their sexual preference. They were always just repressing it. Well, sometimes they change it and they even change it back. How do you describe that? Okay, people's sexual preferences can change. Additionally, the lie that one cannot change their sexual orientation is irrelevant to the claims of Christianity. Christianity doesn't say that you have to get rid of the temptation to sin. It simply says that you cannot act on it. I hope you understand the difference. If you are someone in here and you struggle with same-sex attraction, you need to know, you need to know that the reason that you're drawn towards that is because the world is broken, just like the reason I'm drawn towards other evil things is because the world is broken. And all of us have to say, I will not follow what my heart says to do. Instead, I will follow what Christ says to do. Lastly here, Jesus can give you new desires. Jesus can give you new desires. There were certain things that I liked when I was lost and I got saved and my heart changed and I no longer like those things, okay? Jesus can give you new desires. There are many reports of people within the homosexual community that become Christians and God gives them a new heart. And now all of a sudden, some guy that was attracted to other men is now attracted to a woman and gets married. He's not just faking it. He's not just repressing it. God can actually give you new desires. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God gives you a new heart, that you're born again, that you're regenerated by the Spirit? Now, the homosexual community does not want you to know about these. They're just saying those people are repressing it or they're being counseled, you know, scared straight and all these kind of things. That's just not the case. Lie number three, that there are more than two genders. That's a lie sometimes you'll hear. That there are more than two. And again, you can, I'm using the term gender and sex interchangeably. Again, I know the difference. I'm just doing this for common parlance. There are more than two genders is the lie. Here's the refutation of that. There are only two options regarding how your body is set up for the purpose of reproduction. There is no third option. This is the only consistent, physical, and scientifically verifiable way of defining male and female. There are only two genders. Now, if you're saying, well, Zach, what about somebody who is born with both sets of genitalia? What about somebody who is what is called now intersex? Okay, we're gonna get to that in just a minute. So hang on, that's one of the things we'll deal with. Line number four. Line number four is this. If a particular act happens in nature, then it must be, quote, natural and therefore good. You'll hear this a lot, okay? Because there are gay penguins or because there are gay monkeys or something like that, because there are acts of homosexuality within nature, therefore, homosexuality is natural. That's the first leap. And then the second one is, therefore, it's good or should be affirmed or is not sin. That's the second leap, okay? Let's, let, let's mention a few things. <clears throat> first of all, Nothing in nature is like it was before the fall of man. What's natural is not natural today. If you say something's natural, you can only mean back in Genesis 1 and 2. Post-Genesis 3, the world becomes broken. We would think of thorns and thistles as natural because we see them, but the Bible's clear that that's part of the curse. It makes our job harder of working the ground, right? We would think that pain in childbirth is natural because we see it all the time today. According to the Bible, that's part of the curse. That's part of the result of the fall. 
that Adam and Eve's job of subduing the earth and being fruitful and multiplying becomes much more difficult, okay? What's natural is not what we see in nature today. We live post-Genesis 3. We live post the fall. So that's the first thing that you need to understand. What is natural today is not what was natural originally because nature's been affected by sin. The world has fallen. Seeing that there are gay penguins does not mean homosexuality is okay. <clears throat> it means that when mankind rebelled against God, everything under man's dominion, the earth, became broken, including penguins, okay? That's kind of the idea of what I'm saying. A few other things to note for this lie that if a particular act happens in nature, then it must be natural and therefore good. There are many evil things that happen in nature that we say are bad. Mothers eat their young, okay? If you're a mom, maybe you're kind of feeling that way in this season where there's a lot of quarantine and you're kind of trapped in the house, but we would not say that's good, right? You see mothers eat their young. Or how about this? Male lions rape female lions, okay? I don't know if you've ever seen like a National Geographic video, but animals mating is not like Lady and the Tramp where they're like smiling and they roll a, you know, a meatball across the spaghetti or something like that, okay? It's not like that. Would we therefore say rape is okay? Would we say fighting? So sometimes you'll have like a male lion that fights or kills another male lion to take his woman. Would we say that's okay? That I can go up to some guy and kill him and take his wife because, well, it happens in nature. Therefore, it's natural. Lastly on this point, you cannot imply, this is going to sound a little philosophical, so bear with me. You cannot imply that something should be some way just because it happens to be that way. You cannot imply an ought from an is. This is what's known as Hume's guillotine in philosophy, okay? If I see a lion attack another lion, that's all I've seen. Just from viewing that, I don't know whether or not that's good or bad. I cannot imply what ought to happen. Ought lions to attack one another? I don't know. All I can observe is two lions fighting, okay? So just because I see something in nature, I cannot then make the leap to say, oh, that's good, and it should happen, and it ought to happen just because it does happen. That's what the LGBTQ community has to do with homosexuality. Because we see it in nature, that's good, and that's what ought to be there. Well, you don't see the ought. You don't observe the ought. You just see it happen. You don't know why it's happening. Is that a defect? Should it not be happening? Do we live in a broken world? Is there something that is broken in that penguin or lion's brain or whatever, which is why it's not actually seeking to, uh, you know, repopulate and grow the species? Line number five, you'll hear this one a lot, that one cannot, or it is unhealthy to, suppress their sexual urges, okay? You'll hear that, that if somebody is attracted to somebody of the same sex, or whatever it might be, that it is unhealthy, or you cannot, it's not even possible, to suppress their, their sexual urges. Let me give a few refutations of that. First, we suppress our sexual urges all the time, okay? Anytime that somebody wants to rape somebody and does not, they have suppressed their sexual urge. Anytime somebody wants to commit adultery and does not, they have suppressed their sexual urge. We suppress our sexual urges all the time. In fact, I would say it's unhealthy not to suppress sexual urges. You have to. To live in any type of society, you're suppressing some sexual urges all the time, okay? If you're post-puberty, that's what you're doing, okay? <clears throat> now, next, you need to know this. Sex is not required to be healthy, some people choose to be single and celibate, and they're perfectly healthy. They're healthy physically, they're healthy mentally, they're healthy spiritually. The Bible would even say that for the purposes of ministry, it's better to be single, okay? Now, I don't have that gift. I just skip over those verses. I like being married. But some people are called to be single, and the Bible would say, not that it's holier, like you're closer to God, but it's better only in the sense that you have more time to devote to ministry if you're single, right? Jesus is single, Okay, if you want to talk about somebody who's spiritually and mentally healthy, Paul is single. You want to talk about somebody who's spiritually and mentally healthy. So just know that it's just not true to say that you can't suppress your sexual urges. Listen to this next point, because I think it's a good pastoral point. <clears throat> Christianity doesn't ask you to repress your sexual urges. It asks you to confess them to God and give him control of them. You don't push your desires down deep into your soul. You let go of them and hand them over to Jesus. Repression is different than confession. So please hear me. If you have certain sinful sexual desires, I'm not asking you to stuff that down deep and pretend like it's not there and then one day it just explodes. What I'm asking you to do is to give it to Jesus. Don't push it down deep. Give it to Jesus. Get it off your shoulders, okay? Where it's not oppressing you, where you're giving it up 
where you trust that Christ is better. Let him take this burden that you're trying to stuff down. He doesn't want you to stuff it down. He wants you to give it to him. Line number six. Line number six. I cannot change the things that I'm attracted to. Okay? This is a lie in our culture when it comes to sexuality and gender. I cannot change the things that I am attracted to. A few things. Number one, the Bible, again, is not asking you to change your temptations. It is asking you not to act on them. Do you understand the difference? You don't get to determine what you're attracted to. Your broken, sinful heart, just like mine, will be attracted to all kinds of things you shouldn't be attracted to. It will like all kinds of things you shouldn't like. The Bible's not asking you to change your temptations. It's asking you not to act on them. Additionally, God can deliver you from certain temptations so that they're no longer a struggle for you. There are some things that you struggle with that you will struggle with your whole life, okay? You can fight them, you can resist them. That's what a Christian's called to do. There are other things, though, where God literally just takes away the temptation. God literally just takes away the temptation. I know of a lot of people who used to get drunk and they got saved and they're not even tempted to get drunk. It's not like they want to get drunk and they just don't. They're not even tempted towards it. God can do the same thing in the areas of sexuality and gender. So ask for that. Ask not only that you'd be faithful and wouldn't give in to the temptation, ask for God to take away the temptation, okay? Additionally, what you are attracted to is based on other things you think. Christianity demands that you change your entire worldview, thus allowing you to better see evil desires for what they are. So when somebody says, well, Zach, I can't change the things I'm attracted to, what I have to say is the Bible commands us to change everything, okay? Jesus takes you as you are and then commands you to completely change everything. Change the way you think, change the way that you act, change the way that you talk, change the way of everything, okay? So notice that the gospel requires all of us to change. It's not just something for somebody who's same-sex attracted or something like that. It's for all Christians. We all have to lay down our sinful preferences and the things that we're attracted to that we shouldn't be and follow Christ because he's better and he's worth it. Lie number seven. I've got 12 of these, by the way. So if you're already falling asleep, just keep falling asleep. Here we go. Number seven. It's mean, abusive, and unloving to say that someone's sexual preferences are wrong. That's lie number seven. It's mean, abusive, and unloving to say that someone's sexual preferences are wrong. My first response, being a philosopher, would be, well, then it's mean, abusive, and unloving for you to say that my views are wrong. That little, you make me feel bad razor cuts both ways. But I'd also say this, that's like saying that it's mean, abusive, or unloving to tell someone that their desire for adultery or pedophilia is wrong, okay? You realize that we tell people that their sexual desires are wrong all the time. What's weird though is our culture says we can do that in some areas, but not in others. We would say adultery is wrong, and incest is wrong, and pedophilia is wrong, and most people would agree with those things. Why are we allowed to do that in some areas, but not in others? I would say what's actually mean, abusive, and unloving is to let someone continue in their sin. That's the most unloving thing you could do. The most unloving, abusive, hateful, bigoted thing you can do is to allow someone ignorantly to follow their sin and go to hell. That's the meanest thing you can do. That's the most unloving thing you can do. The loving thing says, don't walk off the cliff. Don't do this thing that is going to hurt you, hurt others, and offend God. Don't do those things, okay? When someone says it's mean, abusive, and unloving to say that someone's sexual preferences are wrong, the very reason they get offended is because they know that what they're doing is wrong. The very reason people get offended if you correct their morality is because deep down, they know what they're doing is wrong. I'll give you an example. So if I came up to somebody and I said, actually, I don't think that you exist, sir. I think that there's an alien that's driving your brain and you're really a robot. Now, does that make that person mad? No, they're gonna think I'm a super weirdo. They're not gonna wanna be my friend but they don't really care because they know deep down that there's not an alien driving their body around like a machine. But when you go up to somebody and you critique their morality, they freak out. They get mad, they get hateful, they get angry. Why do they do that? Well, the Bible would say it's because God's law is written on our hearts. Why is it that you can say something crazy to somebody that they don't agree with and they're totally fine, but as soon as you critique their morality, they freak out? Because God's law is written on our hearts and whether we say something's wrong or not, deep down, we know certain things are evil, okay? Additionally, when someone says it's mean, abusive, or unloving to say that someone's sexual preferences are wrong, we need to keep in mind, we should all have the right to express how we feel to each other even if we disagree. Now, we especially need to hear this in our very polarized, very partisan country right now. So please hear this. Disagreement 
is not hate. Disagreement is not hate. To disagree with somebody does not mean that you hate them. We've defined any type of disagreement as hate. You don't love me, you can't be my friend. That is ridiculous, okay? I should be able to have a friend who is gay and say to that person, I disagree with your lifestyle, but we can still be friends and everything be fine. And he should be able to say to me, Zach, your Christianity is stupid and we can still be friends. You should be able to be friends with people that you disagree with, okay? That's part of what it means to be a rational person. That's part of what it means to be a normal human being. You understand that the freedom of speech is not the right not to be offended. It is the right to offend. It is the right to believe and say the content that you want. We should be able to do that in a reasonable way without name calling and throwing fits and chanting mantras over and over and tweeting against each other. And it's just ridiculous. Why can't we just disagree and still be friends? The irony here is some of the people that promote tolerance are the least tolerant people you will ever meet. They're only tolerant to people that agree with them and not to those that disagree with them, which would be the very definition of tolerance, okay? Line number eight, I can't not have sex, okay? You might hear this from somebody who is sleeping around before marriage. You might hear this from somebody who uh, is cheating on their spouse. You might hear this from whatever it might be. They will say, I can't not have sex. Let me give you a few things, okay? First of all, that's not true. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You're not the only one struggling with this. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What this text is saying is if you are a Christian, you have the ability not to walk in sexual sin. If you're a Christian, you have the ability not to look at pornography. You have the ability not to sleep around. You have the ability not to cheat on your spouse, etc. Okay? So first of all, this is just a lie. I can't not have sex is just a lie, okay? The second thing though is if that's how you feel, then the Bible would say, get married, okay? I find this really interesting. In 1 Corinthians, there are Christians that are going to temple prostitutes. So by the way, let that encourage you that Paul still thinks they're Christians. They're going to temple prostitutes and uh, Paul's advice to them is not what we would give today. Right? Some evangelical leader would get up today and over-spiritualize it and say, well, you should just love God more and so that way you don't commit sexual sin. Well, that's somebody trying to be holier than the Bible. Here's what, here's what Paul does. He says, then get married. If, you're, if you can't control your sexual urges, get married. Now, let me be clear. Sex will not solve your sin problem. Getting married and having an appropriate sexual outlet will not solve your sin problem. Rather, only the gospel can do that. But what getting married can do can help. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, hey, Zach, that's what we're talking about. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That's why I have a beard. Katie likes my beard. If she didn't like it, it would be gone, but she likes it and I like it, so everybody's happy. She has authority over my body. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, meaning have sex, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There should never be a withholding uh, for long periods of time or something like this of sex from your spouse. If it's, if it's mutual, you both decide, hey, we're gonna take this season, we're gonna devote ourselves to prayer, that's fine. But sex should be a common and frequent part of your marriage is what this is what's saying. Why? because it's spiritual warfare, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 1 Corinthians 7, 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So when it comes to lie number eight, <clears throat> you need to hear this. Uh, when somebody says, I can't not have sex, one, that's not true. But two, if you feel that way, get married. That's what the Bible would say, okay? Lie number nine, sexual acts are only wrong if they hurt someone or if it is not consensual. Okay, this is a, another common cultural lie. Sexual acts are only wrong if they hurt someone or it is not consensual. First of all, please hear this. It does hurt someone. Okay, you understand when you commit a sexual sin, there's always casualties. It hurts someone. Studies have shown that non-biblical sexual, a non-biblical sexual ethic does mentally and even sometimes physically hurt people. The rate of suicide among practicing homosexuals is higher than the national average, as is their chance of having an STD. The suicide rate among those who identify as transgender is several times higher than the national average. Not to mention that 
adultery, incest, molestation, and even sex before marriage does emotionally and mentally hurt people. Having a sex change operation or forcing a child to take hormone blockers can physically harm them and make them sterile for life. Pornography has led to increased rates of sexual abuse, rape, molestation, and pedophilia. So when somebody says sexual acts are only wrong if they hurt someone or it's not consensual, first of all, it does hurt people, mentally and sometimes even physically. But more important, it hurts somebody spiritually. Helping someone sin against God causes great spiritual harm and pushes them further away from joy and salvation. Think about that. If God is the greatest thing, he's capital J joy, all joy flows from him, and you're causing somebody to sin against God and pushing them further away from joy, that is harming them. You are spiritually harming them, okay? Additionally, this whole idea that it's okay as long as it's consensual is ridiculous. A 60-year-old man in a sexual relationship with an underage boy may not think they're hurting anyone. And it may be consensual, but it would still be wrong. Notice in that case, someone's not being physically hurt, possibly, and that they're, uh, it's consensual, and yet we all say that's wrong. In fact, we have laws against that. You say, well, Zach, well, that's just because there's an age difference there. That's not okay. But other forms of consensual sex are okay outside of marriage. Really? How about you imagine a brother and sister? who consent to sexual relations with one another. And let's say they use protection so they don't conceive a child with genetic deficiencies. Now is it okay? Well, no, we would still say, actually, even though it's not hurting anyone by society's definition, and it's consensual, and they're not reproducing and harming their baby because of genetic deficiencies because they're brother and sister, we still say that incest is wrong. So it's just not true when somebody says sexual acts are only wrong if they hurt someone or it's not consensual, okay? Something is not just wrong because we do or don't think it hurts somebody. It's not like you and somebody else can just agree, we don't think this thing is bad, and therefore it's not. You don't get to determine those things. Line number 10. If God made something feel good, then it can be pursued however I want. If God made something feel good, then it can be pursued however I want. Now, first of all, typically people aren't going to say it that way. That's too black and white. That's too condemning, okay? They'll rephrase it, but that's essentially what they're saying. This is something I like, and it feels good, so I can pursue it the way that I want. Well, first of all, you don't hold this view in other areas of your life. You don't say that just because killing someone is an adrenaline rush or punching someone that you hate feels good, then you can do it. So there are a lot of things that feel good that we agree are not good to actually do, okay? Additionally, God made things feel good to be pursued in the way he intended. Sex and marriage, money without greed, wine in moderation, etc. So it's been said, and I agree with this, that sin is fulfilling a God-given desire in a God-forbidden way. That's what sin is. You have a desire to have provision. The sin is when you steal. You have a desire to have sex. That's a God-given desire. It's meant for marriage. And when you sin, it's when you do it outside of marriage, right? You have a God-given desire to partake in wine or good food or whatever. And when you do it in an unbiblical way, it becomes drunkenness or gluttony. Sin is fulfilling a God-given desire in a God-forbidden way. And so that's exactly what this is doing. The reason that sex feels good is because God is kind and he has given a gift to married couples, okay? It's not to be pursued any way that you want. Lie number 11. Someone born with both male and female genitalia proves that sex is not binary. Okay, so listen to this one. This is a big one, okay? Someone born with both male and female genitalia proves that sex is not binary. This condition is called intersex. Okay, that's what it's called now, someone who's born intersex. It used to be called hermaphroditism, okay? Someone used to be called a hermaphrodite, but that term has fallen into disuse. That's not what people uh, say today. It's seen as kind of an insensitive term. So we use the term intersex now, okay? Now, how often is that, or how common is that? About one in 20,000 people are born intersex. This could mean that they have a chromosomal abnormality. They're born, you know, XXY or something instead of just XY. This could mean that they have trouble receiving testosterone, It can mean that they have both male and female external genitalia or a host of other conditions, okay? There's a lot of uh, conditions that fall under intersex, okay? These are also what are known as disorders of sexual development or DSD, okay? Uh, Disorders of sexual development or DSD. Now listen, what happens most often in this case is that the doctor identifies what the actual gender of the baby is and then performs surgery to address the abnormalities present. So let let me explain what I'm saying. When a child is born intersex, what used to be called a hermaphrodite, okay? It's not that there's some third sex. It's not that sex isn't binary. What the doctor does is see what their actual sex is, their actual gender, their actual biological sex, and then they just perform surgery to address the, what's abnormal. It's not that the baby's not male or female. It's other. That's not the case. 
Rather, we just have to do a little more homework to figure out what the baby actually is. But the baby is one or the other. So a few things that are important to note. First, someone who is born intersex is not a third sex. They are not other. They are either male or female, and we can trace back the abnormality to find their actual gender. This means that sex is still binary, even if we have to do a little work to find out which sex they really are, okay? So if a baby is born with a, you know, XY, with a Y chromosome and is male, and also has some element of female genitalia, they just remove the female genitalia and everything's normal. And that kid grows up to be a normal man, okay? Number two, those who are intersex most often do not identify as transgender, but rather are happy with their actual physical sex and live accordingly. Now, this is interesting. So when the LGBTQ movement says, well, gender's not binary because look at intersex people. They can be male or female. That intersex person says, no, I'm just a man or no, I'm just a woman. I'm not some third thing. I don't agree with the movement. I'm just had a birth defect. That's all that happened. Number three, the intersex condition means that gender fluidity is not true. Someone who is intersex is actually male or female, but they don't switch back and forth based upon an internal mental state, okay? So again, the whole idea of gender fluidity or that sex is not binary clashes with the idea that there are men and women even within the transgender movement. And then number four, but the most powerful argument against transgenderism on this point is that intersex is a physical condition. The transgender movement states that transgenderism is an inner state or a social construct that is not dependent upon one's bodily sex. But in the case of intersex people, we are only talking about bodily sex. So if somebody says transgenderism is true because some people are born intersex, you can then respond and say, you know what, I'll go ahead and, I don't believe this, but I'll go ahead and grant you that point. Only people that are born intersex can be transgender, but nobody else. You happy with that? Well, no, I wanted anybody to be able to say that they can be the opposite sex. Ah, okay. So intersex people had nothing to do with this debate. You were already just leaning into your presuppositions. Lastly, lie number 12. <clears throat> Christianity must be false act because the Bible sets an impossible standard of sexual purity. Therefore, Christianity or the Bible must be false. The Bible has given us impossible rules. Therefore, the Bible must be false when it comes to its restrictions of sexuality and gender. Let me give you both sides of this. I think you need to hear both sides. So first of all, on the one hand, that is not true regarding physical action. You can physically not commit adultery, right? Whether you're a real godly person or not, you can literally just physically not do it. You can physically not look at pornography, whatever it might be, okay? So when someone says the Bible sets an impossible standard for sexual purity, that's not completely true when it comes to our physical actions. We can physically restrain from doing these sexual acts as humans, even as lost people, right? Even if there are celibate lost people, okay? Now listen to this other side. On the other hand, to say the Bible sets an impossible standard of sexual purity is true regarding our spiritual state. The Bible does set an impossible standard of sexual purity in that even to lust in our heart is to commit heart-level adultery. So on the one hand, you physically cannot look at porn, okay? So the Bible is not, uh, it's not that you have to run into all these sins because you are a sinner and therefore you have to commit all these actions. But when you press it back to the level of the heart, the Bible has given us an impossible standard, okay? To even think of somebody with lust that's not your spouse is to commit a heart-level adultery. Well, that's every adult. That's everybody that's, you know, past a certain, if you've ever been to the beach if you've, I mean, if you've ever dated somebody, I mean, that, those, those thoughts happen and we sin against God and we have to repent. Now listen to me. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we're Christians. This whole argument assumes that just because we fail at God's commands, we're not somehow held accountable to them. But that's not Christianity. The whole point of Christianity is that we do fail and we have not kept God's commands and that's why we need a savior. We need a savior who didn't lust to save those of us who do. Okay? So, so when somebody says, Zach, Christianity can't be true because, and this isn't just true with sexuality and gender, this is a lot of things. Christianity can't be true because the Bible gives us a bunch of commands that are impossible. To love God perfectly, to be perfect, to always think of others as better than ourselves, these kind of things. What I would say is that doesn't mean Christianity is not true. That means you don't understand that that's God's point. God wants to shut up all of mankind under sin so that he might have mercy on all that he might have mercy on all. So in conclusion, I want to say this. <clears throat> this is not meant to be a lecture that is bashing certain people, bashing certain people because of their sins, whatever it is, okay? 
If you're somebody listening to this, and let's say you're a part of or sympathetic to the LGBTQ movement, I'm not just trying to throw stones or something like this. We would love to have a conversation. What we want to say is regardless of what you think or what you're tempted towards, there's mercy for you if you will but trust Christ. If you will repent of your sin, whether your sin is homosexual sin or heterosexual sin, that you will repent of your sin, whether your sin is uh, in acting a gender that you're not or your sin is in, you know, maybe being too boastful or proud or whatever it might be, whatever your sin is, I don't care what it is, whatever your sin is, the Bible demands that we all repent. We all don't get to be who we think we are. We all don't get to be the identity we want to identify as. We lay that down and find our identity in Christ. That's true whether you're straight, gay, have gender dysphoria, or don't, okay? Christ is an equal opportunity hater. He stands over everybody and says, you don't get to be what you want to be, and you don't get to do what you want to do. You must submit to me, and I will give you the life you're actually looking for. Everyone is looking for love. Everyone is looking for joy. Everyone is looking for fulfillment. It's only found in Christ, though. The irony is we run away from the one thing that would actually provide that joy, running into sin, thinking we'll find it there, and then wonder why we don't find it. Christ is the thing you're looking for. So would you turn to him if you don't know him? If you do know him and struggle with these issues, would you turn to him? We would love to help you. If you're a Christian, but you struggle with same-sex attraction or whatever, as long as you're willing to fight it, we'll help you fight it. We're here to encourage you, to pray with you, okay? If you're somebody that struggles with heterosexual sin, you're looking at pornography or you're sleeping around or whatever it might be, we're here to help you. As long as you're willing to fight it and follow Jesus, we will help you fight it. Let us know how we, help, we can help. We love you. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we thank you for this lesson. We thank you for your word. We confess that you know how sex works best. You know how gender works best because you are God. You're the one who created these things. Would you help us believe that your way is better? Would you help us believe that joy is found in your word, in what you say? Would you help us believe that your commands are not to restrict our joy, but rather so we might know how life works best and might have the most joy? Would you be with us? We need your help. In Christ's name, amen.